You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Frank Sesno, author of Ask More, The Power of Questions to Open Doors, Uncover Solutions, and Spark Change. I'll talk about questions, but also answers. You're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Also, if you're listening to the show right now and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please hop on Twitter and tell us where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is marketingbook. Today, we're joined by Frank Sesno, and we're going to talk about his new book, Ask More, The Power of Questions to Open Doors, Uncover Solutions, and Spark Change. Frank Sesno is a former CNN anchor, White House correspondent, and Washington bureau chief, and is now director of the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University. He has interviewed leaders from around the world, including five U.S. presidents, and is the creator of Planet Forward, a web-to-television show on PBS that seeks solutions to some of the world's toughest challenges. And, interesting fact, Frank Sesno appeared as a news anchor on House of Cards in the eighth episode of the fourth season. Frank, congratulations on Ask More, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you very much. Clearly, my claim to fame is my 12 seconds of infamy on, on House of Cards. <laughs> yes, uh, that was great. And it's Wolf Blitzer, who wrote the forward to your book. He was also on House of Cards. Yeah, they have. I think pretty much everybody come through in one, in one form or another, but Wolf was great to write the forward, and I really appreciated that. So I've watched you for years on CNN as as history unfolded, and it seems like I already know you, and I'm, I'm sure it'll be the same for my listeners. Yeah, I refer to that as an occupational hazard. So. <laughs> right, right. So you've interviewed world leaders, U.S. presidents. You've written a book about how to ask questions. Frank, do you have any idea just how nervous I am right now? <laughs> I hope you're not nervous. I, in fact, I'm not sure I believe that because you do this all the time. But it's lovely for you to say, so don't be nervous. I'm the one who's nervous because, you know, asking questions is easy. It's coming up with the answers that, that people get you on. That's right. That's right. Oh, boy. So I have to say, though, you know, everyone reacts to the book differently. And you, you think of not only what, what's in the book, but how you may have seen examples in your life. And I just had to say, I've been waiting all my life for this book. And here's why. Wow. In first grade, the teacher, this Catholic nun, she was French-Canadian, uh -huh. she took me 
down to the cafeteria all by myself, and she wouldn't explain what was going on. Got herself a cup of coffee. The other nun was there teaching the class, and she got herself a cup of coffee. We sat down in this empty cafeteria. It was, you know, in the morning. I finally said something like, why are we here? What, why, yeah, did, yeah, why yeah. did you bring me here? And she took another sip of her cup of coffee, and she said in her thick accent, you ask too many questions. <laughs> And so it's always troubled me, Frank, and, until I read the book. And it's like, that's okay. So was she, rep- was she, she was not complimenting you. She was reprimanding you. Well, she was. And you can see that that had absolutely no effect on me because I keep asking questions. But it's just, I think I might have been driving the other teacher nuts with all my questions. And so this, this nun, Mother Joubert, she you know, took me down <laughs> to uh, maybe give the other one a break. See, but, so I think we all have stories like that in our past. So when I was in fourth grade, I think it was. Uh, and I'm, I've got a few years on you probably, but we were, you know, we were in the early, early-ish days of the manned space program in the United States. And I, one day, I remember this so clearly, and I asked my mom, I said, mom, how do astronauts go to the bathroom up there? And she said, oh, you need to ask your teacher that. <laughs> so I, of course, raised my hand in class and I asked the question, well, this is a ways back when we just didn't talk about bodily functions in class. I mean, now this is like, you know, nothing. But anyway, and she said, well, we'll talk about it. And I remember this, to this day, about two days later, she came back and she took me out in the hall and she answered my question. <laughs> <laughs> so we all have those, those schoolyard childhood memories of being precocious enough to ask the question that lands you in the cafeteria with a nun or in the hall with a teacher. <laughs> That's right. So I wanted to read one opening excerpt from the book. But the, like I said, the forward to your book was written by your colleague, Wolf Blitzer. And you worked with him for years, and you know him really well, and he's had an unbelievable career, just as you have. You know, he's had his ups and downs, but what I was really wondering is, do you think he'll ever get over his loss on Celebrity Jeopardy to the, to the <laughs> no. comedian and Conan O'Brien sidekick, Andy Richter? No, I don't think so. I think he walks around. I think that is a, a badge of horror, and uh, <laughs> he will wear that for, for quite some time. Fortunately, Wolf has a fantastic sense of humor, and for all of Wolf's fame, and I've been to basketball games with him, and literally everybody knows Wolf Blitzer. And you know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, and he is an incredibly modest and humble guy, and you know, I love him, and and he was wonderful to write the forward to the book. Yes, and it was terrific. You know, I've always seen him on the news, but then once I heard him, I think he was on the show "Wait, Don't Tell Me" on public radio, and it was a whole different side. It was very funny. He he was there for the game. Let me just open with an excerpt here. And you say, as my fascination with inquiry has grown, I've become increasingly alarmed about the questions we ask or don't ask in public and daily life. Technology has revealed endless horizons, but it has also created a quick hit search engine culture where a fast answer can obscure deeper inquiry. The polarization of politics amplified by social media has fractured civil discourse and infused it with invective instead of dialogue. The news media, reflecting and reinforcing these trends, have grown shorter and sharper. Compared to when I got into the business, television interviewers are given less time and focus more on controversy and horse race than on explanation and substance. Sincere questions too often play second fiddle to certainty, ideology, and outrage. But what if we asked more and asserted less? What would we discover? How much better would we understand the people around us? What if we went asking for solutions and posed truly creative questions? 
that could change the world. So Frank, this book is even broader than the sales and marketing world, but I was particularly interested in it because it has so many things that are helpful for people in that world. So of course, as I'm reading through it, I'm thinking, oh yes, this is deeply applicable to some of the things I encounter in my space, particularly sales and the power of asking questions. So for the listener's benefit, the book is organized in all these chapters of all different types of questions. So what I would like to do is start and ask you to explain, we're not going to go through all of them, but a couple of them that are really applicable to the, the business world. Can you explain what a diagnostic question is and why you have to be comfortable with bad news if you're going to ask those kind of questions? Yeah, and I think this is very applicable to the world of sales and marketing because a diagnostic question is what I refer to as the ground floor of questioning. <clears throat> Before you can do anything meaningful, uh, you need to know what's going on. You need to know what's wrong. You need to know what the problem is. Uh, each of these chapters I tell through a character or characters, and in this chapter, I have three of them. One of them is a nurse practitioner in Appalachia, and she's dealing with impoverished, in many cases, impoverished Americans who, and who are not healthy and have not been able to lead healthy lives or have chosen not to, what she calls train wrecks of people. The second character is a Wall Street turnaround artist. He goes and he deals with companies that are in trouble, and he tries to figure out what's wrong so he can save them or take them through bankruptcy and preserve what's left of them. And the third character is my neighbor, Al the Roofer. <laughs> and in all cases, these three folks have to go in and figure out what's wrong. To figure out what's wrong, they need to ask about symptoms to connect them to causes they need to draw on history and experience over time to figure out what's been tried in the past and whether it's worked or not or produced results. They need to go looking for bad news, go looking for the bad news of what it is in someone's life that has created this diabetic incident, go looking for the bad news or the, the condition of diabetes, go looking for the bad news around a company that is failing and that is losing market share, go looking for bad news. Where is this leak coming from? And they have to embrace that. We don't do that very much in our culture. So that to me is, that's what diagnostic questioning is all about. Fundamentally figuring out how we connect symptoms to cause to determine what's wrong and what we need to do about it. And I've heard in, uh, in, in the sales world and they, some of the sales trainers joke about how when someone's learning to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist, they teach them the first problem the patient brings you is never the real problem. Well, because they're, which is actually the case in the, in the case of, of the story that I tell with the nurse practitioner who's dealing with this patient who's had, a, you know, is having a, a very serious uh, diabetic response. <clears throat> and I think that the, the other lesson, of course, that pervades throughout the book is asking in a, a series of questions in a really thoughtful, disciplined way and very, very good, intense listening. If you're in sales, what, what you, you know, and you're, and you're going to be successful, you're going to create a relationship with that other person. And, and you can draw that person out to figure out what are they looking for? What are they unhappy about? What are they trying to address? What are they trying to fix? Armed with that information, you can then speak about what you bring to the equation that will address that problem. You've got that level of connection with that other person. So there's, a, there's both a powerful informational and human dynamic that comes from that exchange of the, of the series of questions um, that you can thoughtfully ask. The other thing that I observe in the book is that people remember what they say more than what they're told. So if you're engaging a, a customer or a potential customer to tell you what they're looking for, to tell you what's been not been working in the past, to tell you what would make them or their company very happy, and they are stating it first, then 
that is part of the conversation that they will recall and remember and that you can address directly in, in your own responses to their questions and the, the questions that you ask that, that, that prompt them to, to respond. You're trying to create a conversation. So another one that is just sorely needed in the business world are what you call strategic questions. And I, you know, I read this and I thought, so it's the person who's sitting in the conference room saying, why are we even doing this? <laughs> what are we trying to accomplish? Can you explain for the listener what you mean by these strategic questions? So strategic questions, first and foremost, and they pose themselves in that staff meeting or board meeting or business meeting every day, is you got to look over the horizon. Strategic questions are the types of questions that CEOs should ask themselves and be up at night thinking, you know, what are we doing, you know, with our business? Where are our real threats coming from? Uh, what do we want to be doing in six uh, months or six years from now, not talking about the current quarter, but looking over the horizon. And so that is that is of critical um, importance. And so what we need to do in that particular case is step back and ask ourselves, and like the character for this chapter is Colin Powell, who's pretty brilliant at this, what is over that horizon? What are in our interests? What are the risks we've not th- thought about? What are the alternatives? And you challenge through these questions your own biases and the group think in the room to really look at upsides and downsides over the long haul. Yeah, I th- a group think is probably one of the scariest things, particularly after reading that chapter about being able to ask these great questions. And I think also, though, there are a lot of, there's a lot of fear of asking those questions. If you've ever worked in an organization where they didn't want you to ask those kind of things. Well, th- there can be fear of bucking the conventional wisdom in the room. There can be fear of speaking out of turn. There can be fear of sounding stupid. There can be fear of challenging the boss. So there are a lot of concerns. It's very interesting. You know, we can encourage our children to ask questions, but we kind of shut down as we go on. And one of the reasons we shut down is we don't want to seem stupid. And the art of asking the very basic open-ended question, what are we trying to accomplish here? What's our goal? While sometimes that sounds really stupid, I've been in board meetings. I'm on boards where someone will ask a question and it'll just shut the, it'll just shut the whole thing down because people have gotten so lost in the weeds. Yes. That larger strategic, well, what, what are we really doing here? What's the real threat we're responding to somehow gets obscured or lost. Absolutely. So I've had authors on the show and in, they talk about the key to effective modern marketing is basically the more empathy that you have for your customer, the better the content you can create and the better that you can connect with them. In an era when it's really difficult to connect with people unless you're helpful, interesting, entertaining, you know, there's not as much of a captive audience anymore where you can shout at them. Can you explain what an empathy question is? As I mentioned, each of these chapters is told through a character. And one of the characters, there are several, I think, wonderful characters in, in the empathy question chapter. And one of them is Terry Gross, Terry oh, Gross yes. who, who is the host of Fresh Air, which is a program on NPR. Terry loves to interview artists, creative people, authors, and get at what she calls the essence of who they are. What is the source of their creativity? What generated their and inspired their creative thought process. And getting to that essence requires intense listening and listening for different things than you're listening in some of these other question categories. And then having trust, a rapport, so that they open up and they connect with their who they are and, and where it comes from. That is vital in, in business relationships and in exactly what you're talking about. If you can establish that kind of rapport and project that you care and that you're listening 
and that you're attentive and you're drawing someone out in an empathetic way so that you're not just imagining what it's like to be them, but you're actually standing in their shoes. That creates a relationship that I think is going to be very beneficial in any business relationship, but especially when you're you know, in that slice of life that you're talking about where you've got to build a trust in a relationship so someone's going to invest in you. It's really, really difficult for companies to have empathy for the customer because they are, for a variety of reasons, they're very focused on themselves and how to run their business and their heads are down there. And there's a great story I've heard about Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon. And what I've heard is that when he goes to meetings at their headquarters, it's in various conference rooms, and they always leave one empty chair at the conference room table. That's what he wants. And invariably, and the chair represents the customer. And at the meetings, he will point at the chair and say something like, well, we already know she's already told us that that's not what she wants. And she's the only one that's able to keep the focus on on the customer. And so then what happens is people preparing for these meetings with the boss, they say, wait a minute, he's going to point at that chair. Oh, that's right. We completely forgot about the customer. (laughs) What do they think about this? So that's interesting. Now, moving on, there's another type of question that is super applicable to sales, and those are bridging questions. Can you explain a a bridging question and when you really need to use those? Bridging questions are used to build rapport, and they are used first and foremost when you're um, engaging someone who is suspicious or uncomfortable, maybe a little wary or worse, (laughs) maybe outright hostile. Hostile witness, right. A hostile witness. And what these questions do is they try to create again, this rapport through bit-by-bit conversation. The character that I use, and he's an extreme character, and it's an extreme example, but I do it on purpose because I think it's analogous to just exactly what you're talking about. I almost entitled this chapter of Terrorists and Teenagers. (laughs) Because (laughs) But this character, his name is Barry Spodak, and Barry Spodak was actually John Hinckley, the man who, who shot Ronald Reagan. He was his group therapist. He was a graduate student at the time. And Barry now trains the FBI, U.S. Marshals, and Secret Service on how to, in what's called dangerous threat assessment, how to determine whether someone who's done something or written something or said something threatening, whether they're actually a threat. So Barry has a series of, of things that he does that create connection and rapport with people who are wary and hostile and maybe even angry by definition. And I'm thinking of, you know, someone you're trying to do business with. They're not, you know, they're not going to be a, a dangerous threat, but they, you know, there may be, wait a minute, what are you trying to, you know. Yeah, what are you trying to sell? And it's just another, yeah, just another person taking up my time. Exactly. So Barry connects these people and I, and bridge building questions, connect a piece at a time. And sometimes you don't, you have what I call questions without a question mark. It's a way of engaging somebody. So in a, in a business relationship, it can, you know, in Barry's relationship, it would be, well, you know, you've written this letter and you think the president is the Antichrist and blah, blah, blah. A lot of people think like that. Tell me about that. So it conveys to this hostile, wary person, the company of others, and says, tell me about how you're feeling. It doesn't ask him, are you about to kill the president? Right. In a business relationship, it's nothing like this in some ways, but, you know, it's tell me about your business. Tell me about what you're doing. It's displaying that level of curiosity that invites that person to start speaking. That's, it clearly conveys, and this is what Barry does, your interest in them. And then Barry has a, 
a lot of his purpose is to get that other person talking. And then he has what he calls micro affirmations. And those micro affirmations may be, you know, the tick of an eyebrow, the nod of a head. The, that's interesting. A, a comment. Tell me more about that. And that micro affirmation, that engagement to the conversation if you're trying to establish a relationship with somebody at a business level where they might be wary, rather than making the hard sell, can be very effective in building bridges over time. It, impl- you know, it implies you've got the time. You know, if this is an elevator pitch, you're not going to be able to do this. But if, if you've got some time with somebody and you've got the ability to invest and, and they're going to invest in you, because one of the points I make about bridge building questions is they do take time. You're not going to go, you know, Barry's not going to go from question to confession (laughs) in 10 minutes, just as you're not going to go from pitch to sale in 10 minutes. Well, you'd better not. (laughs) Well, unrealistic, right? It's true. And also, uh, there are so many, particularly in the business-to-business world, the sales are complicated. They involve lots of people. It's a long sales cycle. And that's why it's harder to think of situations where this doesn't apply than where it does. And Right. And fundamentally, it's about building that rapport, that sense of trust. And that's vital if you're going to have the relationship that's going to go from meeting to proposal to sale. Absolutely. Go through all those folks. You've, you've got to have that that relationship. You know, I, I write that, you know, there's, a, there's the old expression, imitation is a serious form of flattery. Yes. Well, flattery is a lot of what propels the business community, the business world. I mean, you just, it's not, it's not overt flattery. It's not being obsequious. But it's, you know, you care enough about me to show up. You care enough about my business to invest your time so that I actually think that you're trying to help me and not just make a, a sale. Yeah, you say at the end of the book, believe that inquiry, not imitation, is the sincerest form of flattery. Right. That jumped out at this business guy. Good. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> so, so some of the most successful marketers and salespeople are those that are able to inspire other people. There was a recent author we had on here about Thomas Barta. He talked about the 12 powers of a marketing person. You have to be a leader. You're not going to be in charge of these people. And one of the most effective ways is to inspire other people. And related to that, can you explain what this concept of a creativity question? I love creativity questions because I I love the creative process and the collaborative process that accompanies it in most cases. And so the creative question is the question that, that encourages people to swing for the fences and think not just think out of the box, but burn the box. <laughs> <laughs> and it invites people to think about the future. And I've been in a retreat when we did this where we said, okay, it's five years from now. This particular enterprise is now number one in the class. What are we doing? And it takes a future tense example or a future tense proposition and turns it into a present tense question so that people respond in the present tense. And by doing that, they leapfrog all the obstacles and impediments that would normally get them in the way, which I, you know, in my job, I encounter this all the time. If I ask people the right way or the wrong way, I'll say, oh, well, we're not going to get the people to do that. Oh, that's going to cost too much. Oh, well, so-and-so has got more than this, and we're not going to be able to move the resources over here. But if I invite them to dream, they'll go right out. And that's what this kind of thing That's what these questions do. They create what I call an imagined reality. Imagine if you had all the resources you could have and you could be accomplishing just exactly what you accomplished. What would you be doing? What would that office look like? Right. It's very powerful. And I think you even use the word magic wand. 
Yes. When you talked about this, and I've often thought about that, where you know I have a company, and so where companies will come to us, and we'll basically it's back to the the patient. The problem they bring is not usually the real problem. And one way that I'm able to get the information I need more quickly is to, in essence, try to find out what are the results you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Okay, what are the results? And the the better way to say that is say, look, if I had some magic wand, or if you had one and you could wave it what would your world look like? And I'm telling you, Frank, it works. Because then people sort of, their body language changes and they relax and they they take a moment to pull their heads up from the desk and think think about this, the future. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's very powerful, but not done all that often. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think it's, I think that's exactly right. You want, and, and this, the other thing that's, that's powerful in this type of questioning is you engage the group mm-hmm. and you have the power of the group. And so whether that's a staff meeting or whether that's, a meeting where you're you're meeting with clients and you're meeting with several. That notion of of imagined reality can be inspiring because you're imagining your aspiration. You've got the magic wand. Now you may not be able to wave it all at once and have it happen all at once, but if you can identify your goal, your five it's five years from now, and this is your goal. Now you can work backwards and articulate what it will take you to get there. And if you're working with someone in a client relationship. That's like your opportunity to step in and say, well, here's how I can help you do that. Once they've already pointed the way. Right. Where they want to go. The thing that you know, it, it was in the book that I'm probably going to carve in stone and put up on the wall was a line that I, I hadn't used before, but I'm, I'm, I'm using it, Frank. I'm going to steal it from the book. What would you do if you knew you could not fail? Isn't that wonderful? Oh. Isn't that wonderful? So yeah. This is this is a plaque that is on Gavin Newsom's desk. Gavin okay, that's Newsom. why I was thinking of a plaque. That's right. It yeah. was that story. That's great. Yeah. And Gavin Newsom was the youngest mayor of San Francisco in 100 years. He's in the job three weeks, and he is invited by Nancy Pelosi to come to the State of the Union address being delivered by George W. Bush. And this is controversial, but this is where it came from, or where part of, where, where part of his inspiration came from. And in that uh, State of the Union address, George W. Bush called for a constitutional amendment to enshrine marriage between a woman and a man. Well, okay, that didn't go off particularly well with Newsom. He's from San Francisco, big gay population. But as he was leaving, he overhears a woman sort of derisively say, well, I guess Bush really put it to those homosexuals and, you know, kind of considering that lobby. And he was just very offended by that. He had a gay chief of staff and all the rest. And that's where he said, and he, and he stopped. He, 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 he told me, he, he literally stopped. And he said, what, what have I been elected to do? What have I come here to do? And then he reflected on this plaque that he had on his desk because Gavin Newsom grew up in a very difficult circumstance. His parents split up. His father was a judge, spent all the family money. His mother was working two and three jobs. And Newsom himself suffers from, has dyslexia. He went to eight different schools and was constantly, you know, encountering a problem that a lot of people with dyslexia have where teachers were telling him he wasn't trying hard enough, he wasn't working. And so he was, you know, what would you do if you could not fail became something that was really aspirational for him. In any case, he then went back to San Francisco and he decided after this challenge, he was going to just tell the folks at City Hall, issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, figured they'd get shut down by the state and it would go through the courts. Well, of course, it took on a whole life of its own. He came under huge pressure from Democrats and others and criticism because they thought he was going to lose him the the election, the national election at the time. But the story is interesting. Whatever you think of same-sex marriage, to me, about how someone stops themselves, orients themselves around this very aspirational question and confronts them themselves with the, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? And he was prepared to risk it all. And he did. And what's interesting about what would you do if you knew you could not fail is that it gets you thinking, well, this might actually work. <laughs> yeah. 
also makes you, as anyone in business knows, you have to modulate risk and reward and downside, right? Yeah. And, and the idea of risk-taking in business is critical. And the, what would I do if I knew I could not fail kind of takes the cap off of risk for, to allow you to imagine for just a moment where you would go. And then you work backwards from that aspiration to see if that's reasonable and how you're going to get there and how you pull away the impediments in order to get there. I think it's a, it's a magical place. I do it all the time, school with my, with my school. What would we do if we wanted to be the number one? What are we doing? What would we be doing? And, you know, it involves all kinds of things that we can't do now, but then we pose to ourselves, well, what are the three most important parts of that? Or what are the incremental parts that we can start to, to move along that journey? It also allows me to build the consensus in the workplace to get there. So just wanted to ask about two other kinds of questions, and one of them uh, has, has big implications for customer service, which is such an important part of marketing and sales and basically the customer experience. Can you explain what uh, mission questions are and maybe talk a bit about the Ritz-Carlton? <laughs> mission questions come in a variety of shapes and sizes, but they are fundamentally about asking people to sign on to a mission, not telling them, but asking them so that as they articulate that mission, they understand it better. As I say, people remember what they say, not what they hear. So they issue the words and they find that part of that mission that's exciting for them. Uh, one of the most interesting conversations I had was with a woman named Diana Oreck. I ran into Diana on a plane and we started talking and she was just fascinating to me. And she was telling me that she worked at the Ritz-Carlton and she trained. She was responsible for training people to deliver this kind of totally memorable experience. Ritz-Carlton, high-end brand, wanted to create customers for life. How do we create a customer for life experience? And they had put all sorts of things in place to do it. But so much of it was driven by empowering people and teaching people how to ask. So, for example, you go to Ritz-Carlton and you go to the concierge and you say, excuse me, where's the uh, gift shop? And the, if they can, the concierge will come out from around the desk and start to walk you down the hall. While they walk you down the hall, they'll say, um, by the way, what brings you to our, to our town? And you'll say, oh, a flower show. And you'll say, oh, really? Are, are you a florist? Well, no, but I just love flowers. Really? What's your favorite flower? And you'll say, you know, purple lilacs, right? Whatever. I don't know. And that person has demonstrated interest in you, but they've also intelligence gathered <laughs> and they'll put that in their database. And you just may find yourself next time you're checking into a Ritz-Carlton finding purple lilacs waiting for you. You won't find purple lilacs because they're not great cut flowers. But anyway, waiting for you in your room, something like it. You get my point. They also empower people who are dealing with customers to credit or discount up to $2,000 a day without asking anybody's permission. To solve a problem. To solve a problem or to make someone feel more welcome. And they train them if someone comes to the desk and they're clearly fried or frazzled, what not to ask. So you don't ask somebody who looks like they're upset, how's your day been? Because <laughs> they're probably going to relive the horrors of their day. Yeah. So the idea of creating a superior customer experience by asking and intently listening so that you can deliver this experience that tries to create a customer for life. Diana talked about antenna up, radar on. So a lot of this is about intense listening, even in a, in a fairly transitory relationship or exchange with a customer. So you can use that information and that relationship to build this memorable experience. Yes. Every business, at every, think about the painter who comes to your house and how much more inclined you are to engage a painter who listens to you and asks you about two or three different things because they're showing interest. 
right up through the book salesman who is, you know, trying to sell a, a new textbook to a school district. Right. In contrast to that, there's the the joke I hear among salespeople or sales trainers, some that I know. The the person goes up to the car dealership and walks in, and the car salesman says, "So, welcome. What what brings you here?" And they say, the customer says, well, I'd like to buy a car. The salesperson then says, have I got the car for you? <laughs> Not a single question. And we laugh, but I see that all the time, with even with you know even more uh, less transactional sales. What do I respond to when I'm a customer buying a car? I respond to the salesperson asking me, not trying to do a high power sales job, but asking me, what am I interested in? What are the features that I'm looking for? Why am I in that particular showroom? Have I ever driven that car before? Have I owned that brand before? They want to find out, you know, am I a brand loyalist or am I, am I poking around? If I'm poking around, and this is how you listen and you use this information, if I'm poking around, I've never driven a Buick before, he's got 12 seconds before I, you know, move on. What is the, th- the thing I, anybody knows that I've driven, I don't know, Volkswagen or BMW before? What is the thing he tells me about the BMW that is competitive with or complementary to the Volkswagen or the BMW. You're using the information that you get in real time to, as I say, create this conversation and this relationship, but also to address the information that you've gathered directly. But if you just tell me, oh, I'm so glad you've come to this dealership, you know, I I got the car for you. It's like, okay, first of all, I'm getting the sales pitch and I'm going to start shutting down. And second of all, you haven't bothered to ask me about what I'm actually looking for. Maddening, I tell you. Right. So so the last one I want to ask about was super applicable to marketing, and that is scientific questions. And because marketing now, you know, internet marketing, it's it's so infinitely measurable. And it's almost like with all the, you know, the big data and all the information you have, it's almost like marketers now have night vision goggles where you can start to look at things and test it and not have to go with your your gut as much. Yet, however, (laughs) they're still that are trying to just do it with their gut. Can, Can you explain how to maybe get people more inclined to want to start testing hypotheses and, and have more a scientific approach to, to solving problems? We learn so much from the way science comes at questions and comes at issues. I love them, and we, we, need to, we need to replicate this across society now. But it's also driven by just exactly what you say. We now have so much ability to, to harness data and to incorporate data into our queries and into our responses. Understanding how to do that and understanding that it you know, how we do it over time is critical. But fundamentally, to just lay out what the science, I don't want to say scientific method, but the scientific questioning process is, is there something in the observable world we want to figure out? Why is something happening? How does something work? You pose a question that captures that. You develop a hypothesis that you think might address it. And then you go about over time, collecting data, measuring, testing, to try to prove that hypothesis wrong. And if you can't prove that hypothesis wrong through this methodical approach to testing and measurement and data, then you may have something. Then you push it out and you run it by your peers, your colleagues, and you invite them to try to prove it wrong. And if they can't prove it wrong, you publish it and you say, and my methodology is solid and I think I got something here. That methodical approach to using data to answer a specific question, to develop a hypothesis, to try something, is something that can be replicated at a lot of different levels in business and in marketing to great effect because it's the way to harness a question, a a hypothesis or a, a proposition from that question and then methodically gather the data 
to address it. And whether that is, you know, in, in, the, in my business and media, you know, the bounce rate, uh, how, what is our what is our actual traffic? You know, we need to know that so we know, you know, the Washington Post does A-B testing around headlines. Yeah. Same story, different headlines to see which headlines and which words are producing the most traffic. Jeff Bezos has created, has tried to create at Amazon what he calls the frictionless experience. And they use all sorts of testing to do that. So we know X number of people are coming to Amazon. We know we've got a, a, a yield of such and such a percent of people who are actually conducting a transaction. What do we need to know about those people who are con- transacting? What is their behavior? What do we need to know about the people who are not? And collecting that data is vital to figuring out, okay, if we make that button a little bit larger and make it from green to yellow, it will be more noticeable and our A-B testing shows will produce more engagement. Yes. So, Frank, at the end of the book, you proclaim that there is such a thing as a stupid question. (laughs) What is a stupid question? A stupid question arises from laziness or willful ignorance where you really show yourself in a room to be just clueless. So if, if, you know, it's fair enough to say, well, you know, if, you know, your your company's in in trouble, what's the P&L look like? How deep was the red ink last quarter? That's fair. But if you ask that question after you've had three staff meetings talking about red ink, and you ask it in the wrong way, you just look like you weren't paying attention. And that's what a stupid question is. A stupid question is not asking about the red ink. A stupid question is knowing how to ask about the red ink when you've been talking about that over time. I don't fundamentally think you should ever hold back if you've got a question. But what you need to understand is and ask yourself is, is this question provocative? Is it going to address something so fundamental and so basic, but that people have not really stopped to think about? Or is it going to make me look like an idiot? Because this has already been talked about again and again and again, and I'm being redundant. Yes, and I think there's an element of irritation to a stupid question because people think, are you not listening? They just explained that. There's that. (laughs) Yeah. And in fact, I write about, because obviously the book is about asking more, and I'm encouraging people to ask more, connected by great listening. But, you know, asking a, a needlessly hostile question or asking a needlessly personal question that's inappropriate, those fall into the category of if not stupid questions, yellow flag questions, because there are places where that's just not appropriate. If you're in the wrong group and you ask a question about someone, what someone's earning or politics or religion, that's just not going to be thoughtful and it's not going to be appropriate and it's not going to be appreciated. So you need to be mindful of that while not being timid, because I don't believe in being timid. A stupid question is not an out there question. A stupid question is not something that prompts people to stand back and examine something. That's a good thing. That's you, you want to do that as long as you're in the right place. It helps to have a dynamic in the room, whether it's from a boss or a board or whatever it is, that encourages that. And if that is not encouraged, and there are some cultures that don't encourage it, it can be a, a dangerous place for someone to go. So being mindful about the wider culture is really important. Yes. So Frank, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Uh, asking more and listening harder. The asking more means asking more questions and it means stringing them together. Understanding that the response frequently will not come from the first response. It takes, in journalism, we call them the follow-up questions. And sometimes you have to ask two or three or four times in different ways to get somebody to start revealing themselves or really open up or even realize where they're going in a conversation with the neighbor, in a conversation with a friend. Yeah, you can say, how you doing? 
but it may be two or three, four questions down that you really get to the to the guts of you know what's happened because someone's lost a job and now the money is tight and they may not be able to pay the bills and they're really worried about that and 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 they're not sleeping well. You know that that takes that takes some attention. The listening that goes with that. And what I really do hope on the listening thing that people will take from the book is all these different categories of questions that you and I have been talking about today are driven by different outcomes and that we can be outcome driven in our inquiry, whether it's, you know, science and understanding the unknown, empathy and drawing somebody out, creativity and trying to open up that kind of imagined reality so that you can get the most creative dynamic in in, in a workplace. But the listening that goes with those different types of questions is also different. So in the creativity, you're listening for somebody to kind of go out there a little bit and maybe put themselves on the line and maybe risk something because they're really starting to think in different ways. And then you want to encourage that. You want to give that positive reinforcement. In empathetic questioning, you're listening for someone who's starting to open up, who's starting to connect with their own emotions, who's starting to reveal that essence of who they are. So if I could leave people with one thing, and I apologize for being so long-winded on it, it would be that questions are done strategically, strung together, and thoughtfully, connected by listening that is deliberate and purposeful and active and intent. You know, after reading the book, the toolbox of questions is much bigger than I'd realized. <laughs> Good. I, I just thought, Good. wow, I, I look at all the stuff that's you did, there. You, you did that in so much less time than I did. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just hadn't thought about it, but then I saw these examples of people, how they're, how they're asking these questions, and when you said the outcome, that, that kind of rang a bell for me. Um, so what books have inspired your work and career? Well, obviously, I'm a, I'm a, I've been a journalist, and so I've been you know, fascinated by history and politics. And so, you know, the making of the president series uh, is, is, you know, is, is something that, that Theodore White that I really, the boys on the bus, I was the White House correspondent and has changed so much. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to seeing? I, I tell you, and I think especially in, in, in sort of follows on to this discussion and my, my own interest as a, as a journalist and a traveler and fascinated with people, which is why I like questions because everybody's a story. If you haven't read, uh, if, I, if the listeners haven't read uh, Hillbilly Elegy, oh yes, they should because it, it it brings to life a part of the American dream and a part of the American experience that's been obscured and that that is so critical to who we are as as a culture and in a political moment right now. I'm thralled by that, and I think it's a very important story to to read. Yes, I've heard about that. I heard so much. I have not read it, but it, it seemed very, very interesting. It's very interesting. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Well, I have a website, so they can go to askmorebook.com, and they can see about, they can learn about me. They can see some of my appearances and things I've said in, in press and media and various formats. They can read about the book. They can see a sample chapter. And they can go to a number of places with a click of a button and buy the book itself. We'll make sure to include a link to that and, and the other things that you've talked about. Other Thank books you so much. Forth, at uh, marketingbookpodcast.com. The name of the book is Ask More, The Power of Questions to Open Doors, Uncover Solutions, and Spark Change. The author is Frank Sesno. Frank, Thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, it has been a total pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation and all the best of luck to you. 
And that closes the book on episode 112 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. That's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Let's meet in person. If your organization needs some inspiration and entertainment, I'd be happy to share with your group key insights from over 100 marketing and sales books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you. And please join us next time as we welcome Mark Schaefer back to the show for the third time to talk about his new book, Known, the handbook for building and unleashing your personal brand in the digital age. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.